This podcast with Isabel Fernandez-Mateo is a London Business School lecture on building your career strategy. Isabel Fernandez-Mateo is a DECO Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at London Business School, and much of her research focuses on how social networks influence career outcomes, particularly in hiring, job transitions and career advancement. I'm uh, happy to be here uh, with you at the end of the day. And uh, I've been doing research on these uh, themes of uh, careers and career strategy for quite a long time. But I am a professor of strategy, which means that I look at these issues from the perspective of uh, strategic management. I use the, the tools of strategic management to understand our own strategy, how it is that we think about our own uh, careers and how to manage them as if they were a company. And what I will be doing today is I'm going to give you a little bit of a taster of this course which I have, which is called Building Your Career Strategy, the main aspects of it, what it is that we talk about, and hopefully give you some practical tools that you can use for yourselves as well. So uh, let me just tell you uh, something that some of you may or may not know. But uh, when we think about why people go to business school, uh, either for executive education or more generally for MBAs or for executive MBAs, one of the most cited reasons, not the only one, but one of the most cited reasons is uh, to advance their careers, to progress their careers in one way or another. So when we think about career success or career advancement and the reasons why people come to business school related to that, we tend to think of this uh, progression, I like it, climbing up, like this metaphor of the ladder. Uh, we call it the career ladder. Um, the, the idea that, uh, you know, you work hard enough, you put yourself there, and you just uh, have to uh, keep doing the things that you're supposed to do, and eventually you will climb up and get to some sort of top, right? But we know that, uh, you know, that that's not the case anymore, right? In a way, careers are, if you wish, broken. Career ladders are broken. And that three years number there is the average time that uh, executives now spend on, on, on one job. It's not very long, right? Three years, not very long. And that's uh, from some data from, uh, from a Harvard Business Review, but I've done uh, my own research on this, which by the way, that's another thing that we do here at London Business School. We, use, uh, we do research, and that research we use it, uh, use it directly to inform our teaching. And I did a survey recently, a few months ago, of uh, our MBA and executive MBA alumni. So I, I have uh, data from around 3,000 of them with all the data on their careers, you know, how they have moved, a million things, a lot, a lot of detail. And also I find similar, similar numbers. I find that um, people stay in the same job for around three years. It varies depending on industry, depending on how long they graduated ago. But it's, it's, it's not very long in one particular job. There is a tricky thing, though, when we think about careers as young adults. I think they are more relevant for today's world of work, but at the same time, uh, they require us, you, to take, uh, to take charge, right? Because the path is not clearly laid out, and there are many different combinations, so you actually need to put much more thought about which of those paths are you going to take. That's when the idea of, of uh, your own career strategy and thinking of your career as a company comes in. Because now you have to uh, actually take a proactive role. You, know, you need to plan in a way and think about how you're going to do that because it's no longer a ladder, right? When we think about career success and doing it in a proactive way, I think one, one discussion that I like to have, and I think that, it's, uh, that is uh, sometimes helpful, is to think about, well, but what does make somebody successful in their career? I would like us to think about that, right? 
So let's think for a, for a few minutes, because I would like to do this a, a little bit interactive. Uh, and let's think a, a little bit about what makes people successful. So, you know, basically, uh, basically performance or they just they, they do their job very, very well, right? Well, the, the lights don't seem to be working. So, so you see, when we, when we look at this, um, you know, most of the things that you said that make somebody successful in their career, which are on this side of the graph, are things that have to do with the individual, right? Our individual characteristics, our personal characteristics, or personality, um, motivations, skills, behavior, so on and so forth, right? Then you talk a little bit also about some things that have to do with the, with the context, with relationships mostly. You talk about relationships uh, because, you know, mentorship, <coughs> mentorship relationships, uh, the networks that you have. You could also have said other things about the context around the person, which would be, you know, what kind of organization you are in, uh, what kind of uh, culture, um, which country, uh, a million other things about the context that you do, you did emphasize relationships. And then, of course, we have luck, right? So these are, in a nutshell, the three main elements. So all these things are related to each other, and they all actually contribute to career success, right? And uh, when we think about navigating this jungle game, we have to start thinking about those. But we're going to ignore luck for a moment, just because, again, we don't have time to uh, really delve into that. And we're going to focus on the other two. And uh, one thing that I would like you uh, to remember from what we are talking about today is that when we think about career success, one of the helpful ways of thinking about this uh, navigation of the jungle gym is to think about how we can position ourselves in ways that our individual characteristics match the social context, right? So uh, if you think about the context like the type of jobs, the like type of companies, the type of opportunities, you are going to have to be making those decisions over and over again, as you navigate this, imagine each of these is a position, and at each point in time, you are going to have to be asking yourself, does this point match my individual strengths and abilities and weaknesses or not? So I have to be very, very conscious every time I move of whether that's going to be fitting or not. So this match idea is a very, very important idea when navigating jumping. One that was also important in the, in the career ladder, but in a way, not as much because the path was clear. But here the path is not so clear, right? To explain to my students in this course is that um, it's very, it's almost completely useless to, to plan, to go, have a complete career plan in which you are going to have everything laid out for the next 25 years. Because it's very difficult in this context to do so. But what, one thing we can do is we may not have a map, but we can have a compass, right? So in a way, substituting, the, replacing the idea of the map for the idea of the compass. And that compass has to be related to this match. Like at each point in time, whether new, each new opportunity matches or not your individual strengths and your individual abilities. So that is a compass that can guide you as you go along through this jungle gym. Uh, you know, should they stay with the, with the same company or should they move to another company? Should they try to make an internal move, a promotion, or should they go somewhere else? Has any of you ever experienced that dilemma? Suppose many of you, right? Some of you at least have thought, should I quit this job and go somewhere else or not? And uh, what we know is that those moves are not made equal. There are actually trade-offs. So for example, we know there is evidence from MBA alumni, uh, from some of uh, my collaborators' research, but also some of my research as well, that internal moves are the easiest way to move into a job with more responsibilities. 
Okay, so it's much more, it's much easier to get promoted internally than externally. Uh, and that is, that is a fact, that is something that we, we've learned. However, it's also the case that on average, when you get a promotion within a company, on average, not always, but the trend is that usually it will be with the same kind of work. So it will be harder for you to change functions or roles, or in most organizations, it will be a promotion within the same kind of work. And it will be constrained by the opportunities available. So I, um, I don't know if you've heard about, uh, if you've heard about this quote by Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook. Uh, when she took a job at Google, she said, uh, when you are offered a seat in a, in a rocket ship, you don't ask which seat, you, you just go and sit. Right? You just take it. So, you know, growth, the growth of the organization determines a lot your, your prospect side, obviously. When you think about external moves, they're slightly different. Uh, we have a lot of evidence that suggests that it can take two or three years for people to get up to speed when they move to a different company, and I can tell you more about that if you're interested. And usually, it's much, much harder to get a promotion, like a significant promotion in terms, for example, of increasing number of uh, reports or something like that, when you move to another organization. So generally, uh, you might get an, an increase in pay, so they would pay you more, but it would be less likely that you, you get promoted. And also, um, the increase in pay, you will get it if you, if you stay in the same function, but people often use external moves to move to a different function. So if you want to do a different type of job, you might to have to move organizations. So there are real trade-offs implied in what kind of moves you do. And uh, when I talk with my students, we spend a lot of time trying to understand those trade-offs. And for example, I get very nervous if somebody tells me, Oh, I'm just going to take this job in this uh, in this other organization. You know, I might not get a I might not get a promotion now, but uh, then they will promote me later. It, it, that's tricky, right? If what you want is to is to increase your level of responsibility, you might be better off staying in a in the organization, get promoted, and being able to make the to make the jump to another organization at a higher rank on the ladder. That's going to happen more often than it actually to try to get the promotion from outside, right? Anyway, I'm just giving you an example of how these different moves matter and why it is important to keep in mind these, uh, these uh, different types of transitions when you think about your career, right? What do I mean? Uh, so this, all these uh, elements of, uh, of moves and transitions fit into what I call a career strategy. And what is a career strategy? Career strategy is a very, very simple idea. So the way I think about a career strategy is just a, clear, a very simple definition. It's the combination of individual and contextual choices that allow you to create value, succeed, and adapt over time. Individual choices are, have to do with your strengths, with your abilities, with your motivation, with your personality. If you were a firm, this would be your value proposition. This would be your brand. This could be your positioning in the market. Right? We know that, that uh, a strategy, a firm strategy, is, comp is composed by the positioning the value, uh, the value creation, the business model, and also the resources that you have to fulfill that strategy. So that would be the individual. The contextual has to do with what are those dots, right? And the internal moves, the external moves, what type of companies, what type of people you are hanging out with, what are your networks, and so on and so forth, right? And these are choices. That means they require trade-offs, the same as in the strategy. If you are not making trade-offs, if as a company you are not uh, giving something up, those are not strategic choices. So very often they require very significant trade-offs. And the other element of this current strategy is that it has to be something flexible that you are able to adapt over time. So that's, that's where the idea of the compass comes in again. Right? 
right? It's the idea that I cannot tell you how to plan your career for the next 10 years, but I can tell you what to look for at each point in time regularly so you know whether you are on the right track or not, right? And that's, that's, that's the best way to navigate the jungle gym, like thinking about making those, making those decisions and making them in an adaptable way. Okay. Another way of thinking about this question of what do you work for is, uh, is this idea of what we call, um, what's your anchor? What's your career anchor? What is the thing about your career or that your job that you would not give up to make a difference? That's another one, another career anchor, the sense of uh, purpose or service or uh, changing something in the world. Yeah. So those are, in, in fact, people can be classified in, uh, in terms of eight different career anchors. So this, there is evidence of this. And uh, so there are some people who work for things that have to do with technical competence. This is the, the, the idea of the, the engineer, you know, the functional person, right? Who uh, sometimes the organizations want them to become managers and they don't really want to become managers, right? They want to be functional experts because that's what they thrive on. There are people who uh, would never give up on their, uh, in their managerial um, orientation. They really want to manage people. That's what they like to do. And there are a lot of people who, who are like that. They, uh, they, they really want to manage people. Other people wouldn't give up on their autonomy or their security or their dedication to a cause or service or meaning. Uh, some people are motivated by pure challenge, just by keeping doing things differently all the time. And others by their life, the lifestyle, the work-life balance, right? So this is the idea that we call a career course. In fact, you can go there and you can take the test and figure out which one is yours. So there are ways of figuring it out. And uh, I think it's important to know, uh, in a way, the answer to this question. And again, in my course, we spend a lot of time on this. Because very often, when people um, have a sense of dissatisfaction with their career, they're not sure where they're going, they're not sure that is, there, is this all there is, is because the path they have chosen doesn't match their career anchor, or it doesn't match it completely, right? Maybe they, they put themselves in the managerial uh, career track, but they really, really would rather de de dedicate themselves to some other. So um, that's, a, that's an important question, but the evidence suggests that most of us have a, a core anchor. We, we can have two, maybe, right? So you know, when I took the test myself, I had autonomy and poor challenge were my anchor. Right? And they, you can have two, you don't have to have only one. But this is the thing that you would uh, never give up on. And when people think they have changed, it might be because they have never actually been forced to make a real choice. Or they've always had that career anchor, but they actually, um, you know, they've actually uh, never um, been in the situation in which they, they, their career anchor matched the context, right? So they, they, must, they might not have. Uh, so they might have the sense that it has changed over time because they changed the context, but the anchor was always there. So they don't change very much. That's a long-winded question to know. They don't change very much. But it's very important to respect our anchor, right? to figure out what our anchor is and to respect it because the idea is that when we think about the definition of career success, in a way, success is what you make of it, but it really, deep down, is to find yourself in a situation in which uh, your context match, matches your anchor, right? That you are actually getting out of work what you really want to get out of work, and whatever that is. And uh, in, in the traditional context of the career ladder, other people might actually have defined it for you. But here, you have to define it yourself. And it's more stressful, but actually it's also more fulfilling, because you can pick it, right? You can actually pick that much better. 
as if as opposed to oh well now is I've been here for five years now the next step is I have to be a, a vice president and the next step is I have to be this or I have to be that well maybe yes maybe no right but you do have to respect your um. so the individual part is that and again in my time on that uh, and then um, then there is the contextual part okay and I'm, we're going to spend a few minutes discussing that one as well there are many aspects of the context but the one that actually you also uh, pointed out is important is the relationships around right i have my picture that simplifies that symbolizes relationships as a network the social relationships right so one of the things i do in my research i study how social networks help people careers so how relationships how they manage the relationships uh, how that helps their career progress their career success their creativity innovation and so on and so forth and i spend a lot of time discussing that and of course, when, uh, when we think about how social networks um, affect careers, many, very often you hear this, uh, this statement that, well, it's not just what you know, but it's who you know, right? When people think about social networks affecting their careers, they think about relationships, they think about networking, they think about what are the people, who are the people that they know, right? Uh, and that's a very, very extended uh, way of looking at uh, the relationship between, uh, between networks and career success. Um, if you go to Amazon and um, type networking or social networks, you find lots of books that look like that, right? You know, Masters of Networking, a Highly Effective Networking, The Power of Networking, and they all follow the same, um, the same model, which is, this is a person who knows a lot of people, and they go and tell you how to go meet a lot of people, basically, right? Or, in these days, uh, LinkedIn connections. I accumulate as many LinkedIn collections as possible. The implicit idea being that uh, social networks uh, help your careers, the more you have, the better. So the more relationships you have, the better. The more LinkedIn connections, the more people you know, just accumulate the social relationships, right? And of course, intuitively, many of us suspect that that's probably a simplistic way of thinking about how networks uh, shape your career. But it's not only simplistic, I would dare to say that it might be even wrong, right, and counter, uh, counterproductive. So that might be not, not very helpful. So let me show you two types of social networks. Imagine that this is the social network. Imagine this is a person called, this is Julia, and this is Bob. And they both know the same number of people. Right? So if they went to Amazon and bought this book about, about growing the network, they both would know the same number of people. <coughs> However, there is a difference. Both, all the people he knows, they are all connected to each other, so they don't know each other. While in the case of Julia, uh, they don't. So some of these people don't know each other. Who is more likely to come up with creative ideas? The evidence is very clear. It's going to be Julia, right? Because, you know, think about it. What is, what is, uh, what is uh, coming up with ideas? What is innovation, right? Well, innovation is recombination. Innovation is coming up with, uh, with bits and pieces of... There's nothing new under the sun, right? Everything has been invented. The, the new ideas come from putting things together. When everybody knows each other, the, yeah, the information is complete, but they're all talking about the same thing all the time, right? It's just much, much more likely that they, not only that they are similar people, but even if they are not similar in their demographic backgrounds or whatever, they all are talking to each other, it becomes an echo chamber almost, right? So they, it's very difficult for new ideas to come in when there's a very, very dense network. It is much more likely it's gonna happen here, which I think is a very interesting idea I think, because when we think about how social networks um, create value, very often we think about the connections, how do connections create value, 
But here, what we are actually saying is that <coughs> the value here is in the disconnections. There is value in the fact that people are not connected, that the people in your network are, are, are disconnected from each other. And that is going to have consequences for how you create value, not only in organizations, but in your career as well, to be honest, right? And there is a, a lot of evidence that that is the case. So there are 50 years of research evidence that suggests that uh, managers who have social networks who look more like junior are more creative than their peers. There is evidence from music, and the most innovative music comes from the disconnections, from philosophy, from science. This is very well established in science. From entrepreneurship, so this is even at the, at the firm level. Companies, uh, for example, startups that have connections to disconnected partners are more likely to go IPO, to make more money, so on and so forth. And also from executive careers as well, which is more relevant to our discussion today. And in fact, don't worry about what it says there. But just to show you, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that people who look more like Julia, uh, when we compare to their peers, they are more likely to have higher performance evaluations, uh, more likely to be promoted, and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that you know. That doesn't mean that the people like like Bob are not helpful for some other things, right? And it's all relative. It's compared to what. And the reason why the relative part matters is that most of us tend to become more like Bob over time. We tend to stay in our clusters because it's more comfortable, right? And that actually also constrains careers a lot because we end up talking with the same people all the time, thinking about the same things. And by the way, let me just give a plug for Bob. Bob is good for, for something else. What would Bob, Bob's network be good for? Are good for coming up with new ideas, but then somebody has to actually implement those ideas. And it is much easier to implement ideas in a, in a, in a dense network in which there is a certain level of trust, there is a certain level of um, identification, and so on and so forth. Yes? What happens when you put Julia and Bob together? How do you make it work? <laughs> yeah, so we, we do the spending, my course we spend five hours talking about that. Uh, because of course, you you get on the, on the on the real problem, right? When we are talking at trade-offs, there is a huge trade-off here, right? Because on the one side, you want a network like Julia to be innovative. On the other side, you want a network like Boss to be good at implementing. It's like organizations, have you heard about the context of exploitation versus exploration? So you may, many of you might have, uh, have heard about it, right? So organizations need to be very good at implementing, so exploitation, like both dense networks, but they also have to be very good at coming up with new ideas so to keep, to keep uh, constantly adapting, right? So in your career, it's exactly the same thing. You need to be very good at what you do and implement, and for that you need a dense network, but you need to be very good at, at changing and adapting, so you need a, a network like that. And the solution, we cannot spend a lot of time on that, but the solution, the solution has to do with something that we call the rainmaker network. So fashion yourself in a, in a position in which you have a very close, a very dense network of close contacts, for example, within your department or your division or something like that, that will allow you to get things done, but at the same time that you have a sparse network outside, across the organization, across different parts of the industry, and so on and so forth, that allows you to become more like Julia and get the ideas and then get them done inside. So it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's the general idea. The reason why I emphasize um, the Hedis network is because most people are much worse than that, that they are at being like both. Like most people are, are, are much better at the implementation part, but they are not as good as the others. So if you have to emphasize something, go for that one, but we do need both. But over the course of your career, you are going to be good, need to be good at both, right? 
So you need to actually think about how to, uh, in a way, when, when we think about firm strategy and we think about combining exploitation and exploration, for those of you who are familiar, some of you might have heard the concept of ambidexterity. Have you heard about that? The ambidextrous organization, which is the same idea. How do you actually combine both? You can do it over time, you can do it within firm or outside firm, but that's actually an important part of career management as well, and one that I spend a lot of time discussing. Um, it's complicated, but it's actually critical. We can think about this, right? So uh, the sparse network is the, is the disconnected one. The dense network is the, is the close one. Yeah, that's, the, that's the name. Anything else? No? Okay, so let me just finish uh, or, or uh, sum up with uh, what I like to call the five rules of career strategy. You could have six or you could have four. I like five. It's a nice number. So, which is sort of a summary of what we've been discussing. I'd be happy to take more questions. The first one is, again, you need to take charge. Why do you need, why do you need something called building your career strategy or something of that sort? It's because nobody's going to do it for you. So if you are going to do it yourself, you need to figure out how to navigate this. And this is not easy. This is not easy. But it's actually, it actually, if you do know how to do it, or if you have some rules about how to do it, can give you a lot of opportunities. And thinking yourself as a company, as opposed to as a person, helps a lot for this. The second one is don't plan. Forget career planning, it doesn't really work. But monitor. Don't have a map, have a compass. And have those two building blocks, which are the individual and the context, and at each point in time, regularly, monitor whether they match, and whether, whether this is actually this is actually the point in that jungle gym in which you want to be at each point in time. The truth is that most of you, most of you are privileged people, right? You are going to have lots of opportunities. The very fact that you are here today means that you are privileged. And opportunities will come to you. And uh, they, they, what makes or break uh, the, the sense that we are progressing in our career is whether you pick the right opportunities or not. It's not the lack of opportunities, because the opportunities are going to be there all the time, it's which opportunities you choose. And you need, a, you need some sort of method, so, which is this idea that I call the compass, in order to choose those opportunities. And you can actually do a lot of uh, prayer, a lot of work ex ante with these uh, type of tools to think about what are those elements, so when the next time an opportunity comes, and I need to decide whether to move to the right, or to the left, or up or down, then I have something to guide me, right? And this is something which is flexible. It's not a, it's not a, a plan written in stone, it's a flexible uh, tool that I can take with me over the years, right? So don't plan, monitor. And when you monitor, think about respecting your career angle. A key part of the individual element of this monitoring is what do you work for? That you have to figure out. I told you, you know, there's a website you can go, take a test, but there's a lot of introspection exercises and a lot of things that you can do uh, in order. Some of you know already, but for some of you, there's a little bit of discovery required in order to be true to your career anchor and to know exactly what it is that you work for, right? Then, um, in terms of the networks, you know, embrace, embrace the disconnections. Think about how to build social relationships that will give you resources over time for your career. And one very important thing that we don't have a lot of time to discuss, but it's absolutely essential, you need to build those relationships before you need them, right? So uh, another problem that I very often encounter with my students, and but this not so much with the executives, more with the, with the early career students, is that they think that, okay, uh, I need networks for finding a job. Okay, who do I have to contact now? Yeah, that doesn't work, right? The moment that you go and try to create a contact because you know what you want to get out of that person for an instrumental reason, it's too late. 
It's just too late. You have to do these things way in advance. That's why this planning, this building your career strategy in, in both, try to have into account what are the kind of social network that I need for my purposes and start building it now in a you know in a in a meaningful and non-instrumental way. So building these relationships is a way of life. <clears throat> this requires also what I do in my courses, I give people a, um, assessments so they actually know whether they look more like this or like this, sparse networks versus dense networks with respect to their colleagues. So there are actually ways of figuring this out. We can you know, give you tools that uh, will, will help you, and then they will help you assess which way do you want to move, and which, which gaps in your network you need to fix. Uh, and people get very surprised when they look at these things and they realize that what they thought the social network was, in fact, compared to it with their colleagues, is actually not, um, you know, not what it really is. Right? So embrace these connections. And the last one, which I haven't talked more about, but what does every company need? Uh, what does every company need? A company needs a board of directors, right? You need a board of directors as well, right? So some of you mentioned mentorship. When we think about mentorship, very often we tend to think about one person. Like it would be one person that you know is like an all-purpose mentor that will help us over our career, and. Uh, this is not just for junior people. Senior people need mentors too, and they talk about they talk about mentors as well. I always uh, joke about uh, when I went to Davos a couple of years ago. There were all these sessions about how to find a mentor. And I was like, these people need mentors. Really? <laughs> actually, they apparently need mentors. So, uh, but you know, I don't like thinking about mentors as the mentor, the person. I actually think more about assembling your board of directors. Any company that respects itself and is well governed has a bunch of advisors. It's a bunch of people who have different skills and different abilities and different motivations, and they are going to help you. And I help my students to figure out who their board of directors are and what kind of benefits these people are bringing. And some of those benefits may be very instrumental, like sponsorship, like vouching for promotions, things like that. But others might be more psychosocial, more like, you know, a shoulder to cry on. And it's very important not to mix them, because some people are good for one but not for the other. You know that. We all know the person who is going to help you get that job, but don't go crying to them because they're not going to be there for you. But you need those other people. So then you need to assemble these, right? And people who, have, who are from different industries, many of us tend to be advised all the time by the same people. You know what's one of the biggest problems that people have when they are making a career transition? Is that they, uh, they are using social networks that are really mirrors, right? You look at them and they, they reflect the person that you already are. The people who know us very well, they, uh, they can, it's very hard for them to see us in a different capacity because you know, they've always seen us doing the same thing. So they're actually not very helpful when we want to do something different. So you need another set of people to hang out with, right? And so on and so forth. So anyway, board of directors is very important, okay? But very often people get very hung up on the fact that they think a mentor must be for life. Mm -hmm. And actually, successful mentorship relations or, or uh, advisor relations, they last like for five years or something like that. They, they can evolve. And the person who was your sponsor may become your friend. Or, so they, they do evolve. And it's important that they evolve. And again, we also have tools and questionnaires and assessments to help you think about that evolution. Any other question? Okay, and finally, I'd like, you to, I'd like to leave you with my 1090 principle, <laughs> which is uh, when I spend, well, so my, my course is one week, right? and I spend one week like, with all these tools and do this and do that, and at the end, you know, I, I, I told my students, 
this is extremely important. You should spend time thinking about this. But this is not what you, the, what you should be doing most of your time, right? So 90% of your time, you should be just working. Right? <laughs> so actually doing your job as well as possible and performing, because that's the most important thing. You actually need to be very good at your job, 90%. So think about 90% of your time is that, 10% of your time, you have some sort of strategy, you have some monitoring, you, you, know, you have to do all these other things I told you. The trick is that, that 10% can make this 90% much more valuable because most people don't actually do that, right? So if you spend this 10%, it actually is gonna pay off, but it shouldn't take on your life. I'm gonna leave you with that. I'll put my email address there as well. And if you have any questions or anything else, uh, feel free to contact me. And uh, I hope that uh, you have a nice, you got drinks now, right? Yeah, and the rest of your time here. And thank you for coming. This lecture is from LBS Live at London Business School. Find out more about LBS's short courses at london.edu forward slash executive education. And for more fresh ideas from LBS's experts, visit london.edu forward slash LBSR.